Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the effect of access to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones on youth suicide rates. Please welcome Roger Severino, the Heritage Foundation's Vice President of Domestic Policy. You should all know the name Abby Martinez and her daughter Yaley. Abby Martinez was told by transgender activists, by professionals, that her daughter was a boy, and unless she were to support her daughter's transition, she could either have a live boy or a dead girl. That's what Abby was told. She declined to give puberty blockers to her daughter. She lost custody of her daughter, and she was told a lie every step of the way. Transition did not help, didn't cure the underlying depression or anxiety, was not the panacea that she was told. We have a video of Abigail Martinez's story. She was here a few months ago. I recommend all of you go online and see it. There was some truth in what they were saying, but it was the reverse. Because eventually, after she lost custody of her daughter, Yaley Martinez did indeed take her own life. But it was because she was put on this treadmill, this one-way direction to reject her own embodiment against the wishes of her mother. This is a heavy topic, and there's nothing more important, I think, today than the safety of our children. And we have an incredible panel of experts on these issues to talk through in detail what is happening, and what can be done. To introduce our panelists is our good friend, Ryan Anderson. You should all know who he is. He's president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, of which I'm also a senior fellow. He was a founding editor of Public Discourse, the online journal of the Winterspoon Institute, and he was also a Heritage member here, many years in the DeVos Center, um, doing great work on marriage. He's the author of five books, 40% of which have actually been banned in some way or another, <laughs> including his forthcoming Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing, and his previous book on this topic, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. He received his bachelor from Princeton University and his doctoral degree in philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. Please join me in welcoming back Ryan Anderson and the other panelists. Great. Thank you, Roger, and uh, thank you to the audience for being here today. Um, when I was thinking about this event, um, it made me realize it was five years ago um, that Heritage hosted its first event ever on the topic of gender ideology and um, transition procedures, uh, and I was fortunate to, to host that event. It was four years ago that I published the book as a Heritage Senior Research Fellow that Amazon three years later banned, um, and I'm just so grateful for Heritage's continued leadership on this issue. 
um, the entire conservative movement, and not just conservatives, the entire American people, um, appreciate what Heritage is willing to do uh, in speaking unpopular truths, um, but truths nonetheless. As Roger mentioned, unfortunately, many parents are being told they have a choice between a living son or a dead daughter. They're then being told that puberty-blocking drugs, cross-sex hormones, and possibly even uh, sterilizing surgeries are the only thing that will uh, save their child's life. These are entirely experimental, um, you know, microscopically new when you look at the timeline of human history. There are no good studies that evaluate these. They rely on convenient samples, not representative samples. There are no controls for causality, et cetera, et cetera. And now we have one of the first papers uh, that actually tries to use robust methodology, a rigorous model, um, to evaluate the impact of laws uh, that allow children to transition without parental involvement. It's not a perfect paper, and Jay will explain the limitations, um, but given the data that we have access to, it's one of the best papers uh, that's been produced so far on this issue. As someone who, for nine years, I was a senior research fellow here. I have a PhD in political science, but I'm on the political philosophy side of the issue. It was great to have a Harvard PhD in political science on the science side of the issue, join Heritage, and then say, that's a question I can study empirically. Jay and I were sitting next to each other, uh, what was it, three months ago at, at a meeting that the other Jay organized, and he heard some of these claims, and he's like, that sounds um, suspicious to me. I should test out that claim, see if it's empirically true or not. Uh, and today he's going to present his paper um, uh, looking at the problems with the existing literature on puberty-blocking drugs, um, cross-sex hormones, um, transition procedures in general, and then presenting his own findings, uh, the model he constructed uh, examining data based upon which states allow uh, transition and other medical procedures without parental involvement, and then what the suicide rates uh, look like. Um, so let me uh, introduce our three panelists. Each of them will come to the podium in turn. Uh, Jay Green will speak first, presenting the paper, uh, then Jay Richards, and then Virginia um, Gentles will each speak um, uh, uh, on the paper, Jay presenting it, and then the other Jay in Virginia responding to it. Uh, Jay Green joined the Heritage Foundation as a senior research fellow last year after having served as the 21st century endowed distinguished professor in the University of Arkansas's Department of Education Reform, which he founded and led for 16 years. He received his doctorate in political science from the government department at Harvard University. He's the author or editor of five books, and his peer-reviewed research has been published in leading journals in education, economics, political science, psychology, sociology, and art. Uh, his research on school choice was also cited four times in the Supreme Court's uh, landmark Zellman decision. I mean, so this is a real scholar with the scholarly chap chops uh, to back this up. Um, next, we have Jay Richards. Um, he's the director of the, the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family here at Heritage, and he's the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow at Heritage. He's the author or editor of more than a dozen books, uh, including two New York Times bestsellers. He's also the creator and executive producer of several documentaries, including three that have uh, appeared on PBS. He came to Heritage last year as well, after serving for seven years on the faculty of the Catholic University of America. At Heritage, he focuses on the dangers that gender ideology poses for children and families, and he earned his PhD in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. 
And then finally, we'll hear from Virginia Gentles, the director of education of the Education Freedom Center at the Independent Women's Forum, where, among other things, she and IWF fight divisive ideologies in schools, and they expose the pernicious lies of gender ideologies. Virginia is a longtime school choice advocate and former state and federal policy leader. She served as a senior appointee in the U.S. Department of Education under President George W. Bush. She led the Florida Department of Education's Office of Independent Education and Parental Choice, where she managed the state's school choice programs. While living in Canada, uh, she worked for the Fraser Institute and the Ontario, Ontario Ministry of Education. Uh, she began her career on Capitol Hill as a legislative assistant and a House Budget Committee analyst. Um, she's a graduate of Wake Forest University and the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse, Syracuse University, and she lives in Virginia uh, with her two children. So with that, please join me in welcoming Jay Green to the podium. Thank you, uh, Ryan and, and Roger, um, and thanks to all of you for being here. We've heard already a few times the, the claim that uh, the reason why it's urgent that uh, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones be made widely available and easily available is that they're necessary to save lives, that it's necessary to make these interventions uh, uh, more widely and easily available uh, because um, if not, um, uh, young people will, will um, commit suicide um, uh, out of distress of, of their bodies not conforming with how they perceive themselves. And uh, this claim is an empirical claim, and it would be ideal to support this empirical claim about the effects of drugs if we had randomized experiments, like we have for the initial approval of almost every drug that uh, is used in the United States. Um, for drugs to be approved, uh, you have to have randomly assigned treatment and control groups where some people get the medicine uh, by chance and some people don't get the medicine by chance. And then we observe differences in their outcomes over time. And that's how we can obtain strong causal confidence that the intervention actually produces a difference. We don't have that kind of evidence here. That has never been done for these drugs. These drugs were approved by the FDA uh, but they were approved for other uses. And so these are uses for which they've never been experimentally tested with random assignment experiments. And so what evidence do we have to su support this very strong policy claim that if we don't make these interventions widely and easily available, kids will die? Okay. Well, the claim we have, um, and here I have a PowerPoint um, that is just, oh, it's Behind me? Okay. All right. Good. And I, it's ahead of me as well. Thank you. I, I thought it might magically come down. But all right. Um, so um, the claim uh, really is based on um, almost entirely on three recent studies, um, two led by a team uh, involving Jack Turbin at Stanford Medical School, one uh, led by a team at the Trevor Project. And these, uh, uh, as far as I know, as far as I can find, are the three studies that compare um, uh, people who received and did not receive um, puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones uh, and uh, their uh, rates of suicide or thoughts about suicide. Um, and um, 
these studies are flawed, as Ryan mentioned, because they are convenience samples. That's one difficulty, um, meaning that they don't represent all people who have issues with their gender or have what is called gender dysphoria. Um, and so they're largely convenience samples, mostly recruited from advocacy groups that would be less likely to include unhappy customers. That is, people who were unhappy about their experiences would be less likely to be involved in these organizations and less likely recruited into the samples. And therefore, it's both the results would be unrepresentative of the entire population of people with gender dys dysphoria, but also uh, biased in a particular direction. But that's just one problem. The more serious problem is that th the study design does not approximate it's not only is it not a randomized experiment, it doesn't even approximate a, ra a randomized experiment. Because all it does, uh, all three of these studies, is it, it administers surveys to uh, uh, people who identify as transgender, and it asks them, did you get these drugs? Uh, I'm sorry, did you seek these drugs? And did you get them? And then it compares those who sought and got to those who so sought and did not get on their self-reported thoughts about suicide, okay? And in the studies changed the outcome from last 12 months to ever, and the changes in the control variables from model to model and in outcome variables is also problematic because of the potential of what's called specification shopping or p-hacking that is changing the model in order to uh, get a desired result. But even that is not the real problem. The real problem with this line of research is that it doesn't approximate a randomized experiment. It's not even close to a randomized experiment because the reasons that some people got it and some people did not get it are directly related to the outcomes being observed. One of the reasons why some people would seek and not be able to get these drugs is if they were psychologically unstable at the time they sought them. One of the criteria of receiving these drugs is that people are supposed to be psychologically stable when they receive these, these drugs. Um, and so if people were denied access to the drugs, sought them but could not get them, it could be because they were not psychologically stable at the time. And then it would be unsurprising to find, if we surveyed them later, that they had higher reports of thinking about suicide. They began initially with more severe mental health issues. right? And so this doesn't tell us anything about the causal effects of the drugs. It simply tells us about the differences in the kinds of populations who are able or unable to receive these drugs. So instead, I've tried to do something that more closely approximates a randomized experiment. It is not a randomized experiment, and therefore it's imperfect uh, in lots of ways. Even randomized experiments are imperfect because everything in the world is imperfect. But, um, but, uh, but it's, it gets us closer to, to understanding the causal relationship between these drugs and, uh, and suicide outcomes. And so I took advantage of uh, what's called exogenous variation, a natural policy experiment that occurred. And this is an, there is variation that occurred on where people could more easily access drugs, when they could receive them, and who would be affected. Okay? So it's the, the where, when, and who that make this a quasi-experiment, something approximating an experiment. So let me just skip ahead to the where. As it turns out, states have different policies about the ability of minors to access 
health care without parental consent. These differences long predate the, gen the, the transgender issue and were developed for reasons that have nothing to do with the transgender issue. That is, they are random with respect to the outcomes of transgender interventions. Okay? That's why they, it is a natural policy experiment in that it approximates an experiment uh, in that different states um, adopted these policies for reasons unrelated to, the, to this issue, and therefore it's as if by random people find themselves in a state where they're affected by different policy arrangements. So in 17 states, there is no legal provision for minors to access health care without their parents' consent. But in 33 states in D.C., there is a legal provision. Um, and these provisions vary in how restrictive they are. Um, and now, to be clear, these are provisions that allow minors to access health care of any kind. Okay, So this is not specifically uh, a variation in policy with respect to gender policy, but that's a virtue of this, not a defect. The virtue of doing that is that if it were variation in um, state policies regarding uh, gender care, gender-related care, then uh, there, that would be a result of states, different kinds of states with different kinds of outcomes choosing different policies. Uh, and that would be not random. That would not be approximating a random ex experiment. So, so where these drugs would be more or less readily available has at least something to do with the extra barrier of needing parental consent in some places uh, and not necessarily needing it in other places. Okay, so that's the where. Then we have the when. So as it turns out, the, these interventions, the one-two punch of puberty blockers followed by cross-sex hormones, uh, did not exist in the United States at all before 2007. The first clinic to open up in Boston uh, was in 2007. It only had a handful of, of, of patients. Uh, multiple clinics began to open up around 2010, and then this really took off around 2015. And we can proxy for this. We can see this imperfectly by looking at Google Trend searches for key terms related to this. So the terms puberty blockers, transgender, gender dysphoria, and gender identity disorder. If we look at the average of the Google searches for those four terms, you sure enough see that this is not really an issue uh, before 2010. It begins to be something that people are looking for, interested in. After then, and it really ramps up uh, around 2015. Um, so that's, and th so the when also helps us approximate a randomized experiment because there should be no differences in suicide rates by different policies in states before 2010, but there should be after, right? So, so the when is also an experiment um, or approximating an experiment. And then there's the who. The who is that this policy should only affect people who were uh, in the age where they would enter puberty during the period after 2010, but not include, not affect, anyone who, uh, I'm, who would um, be at least the age of 18 in 2010 when these were introduced, because they would be unaffected by variation in consent policies because they were already adults. Okay? So... Uh, people who are 18 in 2010 should be unaffected by this policy, but people who were uh, entering puberty after 2010 
should be affected by the policy. So there's variation in who uh, that, that is, again, approximating uh, a randomized experiment. So combining those, th- and, and by the way, when, when we look at just the raw pattern without doing any statistical adjustments, simply looking at the difference in the, sui- the uh, uh, annual suicide rate in states that have a minor access provision relative to states that don't have that provision, you could see that among the young group, uh, ages 12 to 23, um, the blue line, that there's no difference uh, up until 2010, it begins to move up, and then it really ramps up around 2015, um, and that's without making any kinds of, of adjustments. And you could see, if you look at the older group that should be unaffected, sure enough, they're unaffected. There's no group, there's no trend across the entire time period. I mean, it moves up and down, but that's just random noise. Okay, so now we just make some statistical adjustments, and the adjustments are controlling for the baseline uh, suicide rate in each state. This controls for any state-specific cultural, religious, or other factor that might make one state have a higher suicide rate than another state that is time invariant. Okay, so we control for that baseline rate. And we also uh, can control for any time variant that is something that changes in states across time, uh, thing that would affect the suicide rate, by controlling for the adult, the older group uh, um, suicide rate in each state in each year. And so adding in those controls, we can come up with an adjusted uh, trend in suicides. And what you see is there's no difference before 2010 when uh, the, prior to when these drugs are introduced in the United States. And then you could see a fairly dramatic move up. Uh, that's an extra 1.6 suicides per 100,000 young people, um, which sounds like a small number, but that actually uh, amounts to a 14% increase in the annual suicide rate in states that have a minor access provision relative to states that do not. So um, by using a natural policy experiment that includes what should be exogenous variation in, in where, when, and who, we're able to come closer to identifying a causal relationship between uh, easier access to puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and the risk of suicide among young people. So that is the paper, and I look forward to additional comments. We're going to hear first from uh, my doppelganger, uh, uh, Jay Richards. Well, this is supposed to be an official response, but the, the reality, I should just admit my bias in that I'm absolutely delighted by this research. As Ryan mentioned, this actually came about serendipitously. So, so Jay is in our education policy shop, and I'm in uh, the DeVos Center. And so the DeVos Center, uh, in terms of who to- deals with different topics, DeVos handles uh, marriage and gender topics, but we had a private meeting here in, in early March, and Jay was going to be in town. He said, that, hmm, that sounds interesting. Maybe could I sit in? I was like, yeah, of course you could sit in. Uh, this was a 12-hour meeting, incidentally, right here just around the corner on this floor. Um, and by the end of the day, Jay realized a few things. One, this argument about, about uh, suicidality and suicides for uh, uh, gender dysphoric teens is an absolute linchpin in the arguments in favor of so-called gender-affirming therapy. 
And he also realized intuitively that, well, you know, that would, that's a statistical question and that's an empirical question. I'll look at the, I'll look at the literature. So that's where it ended. Um, and then very quickly when he did, the literature, as he mentioned, isn't very big. So if you're looking for the evidential base for this claim, that this is actually the sort of the, the best treatment for reducing thoughts and even perhaps incidents of suicide, um, it's a handful of papers. And he saw that. And when he first told me, he had this idea, well, we could test this because of, of variation between the states. I initially started thinking of the things that would make this type of test actually not work. So for instance, if the states that, let's say all the states that had this provision were blue states and all the states that didn't were red states, or uh, that they, all these laws had been added after 2015 so that there was sort of tampering and contamination with the particular thing that was happening. Turns out that's not the case, as you mentioned. Uh, these laws are already on the books, and they're actually remarkably well distributed. If you think of the states as blue and red, they're sort of randomly distributed. So it's actually a, it's a wonderful natural experiment. Um, and so anyone that knows the statistics, I don't want to spend time um, answering all the things that have been said on Twitter about this paper in the last 24 hours, very irritating and mostly wrong and um, not worth responding to. But of course, there will be reasonable responses to this and that we can't prove everything. We don't have a randomized controlled trial here. And so this is, at the moment, I think we can say this, this is sort of the best we have. And so any deficiencies statistically that you think this paper might have, um, the other ones that it is uh, an implicit critique of are much, much worse on, on all those uh, counts. But why does this matter? Here's the policy background very, very briefly so you'll understand why this particular paper matters. Um, we are in the middle of a rapid onset gender dysphoria pandemic. So in 2007, there was exactly one pediatric gender clinic in the United States, which Jay mentioned. Now, modestly, there are 60 of these. And I think with a slightly less modest estimate, there are over 100. And we know, because of research we did here actually a few months ago at Heritage, that there are about 260 Planned Parenthood clinics dispensing cross-sex hormones, in some cases more or less like PEZ dispensers. And so think of those as gender clinics. So this is a massive explosion in the number of teenagers presenting with these symptoms and gender clinics that are willing to treat them in particular ways. So uh, the, the official kind of protocol that our HHS, at least at the moment under President Biden, considers the standard of care, so-called gender-affirming care, follows what's called the, the Dutch protocol. So basically think of this as moving a teenager through different stages, types of intervention. So you start with social transitioning. So that's the, the changing of pronouns and names and bathrooms and sports teams uh, at school. That moves, if the child is young enough, to puberty blockers. So, so stop them from going through puberty because, of course, uh, puberty is where males and females especially diverge physically. So the idea is to sort of delay that. And then after puberty blockers, you can get cross-sex hormones, which would be, of course, testosterone for girls and estrogen for boys. And then that finally followed, usually, though, um, no earlier than 16, and usually at, at 18 or later by surgical interventions. So in some states, girls as young as 16 can get double mastectomies. All right? So that's the, that's the Dutch protocol. Uh, the best way to think of this, I think, uh, somewhat uh, cynically, is the pathway to sterilization. That is literally what this is. Now, social transition by itself doesn't sterilize a child. Puberty blockers, if you look at the HHS website right now, the claim is that that is fully reversible. 
We know that this is not true. We know it's not fully reversible. In fact, if you take puberty blockers, you're, you're effectively freezing a child developmentally at a time that's unnatural for that particular child. So you're not dealing with a child with precocious puberty. This is a child that would otherwise be going through puberty. And then it's sort of intuitively obvious that if you give a teenage girl huge doses of testosterone for several years, that's very, very likely to sterilize her or to negatively affect her her uh, fertility later in life. All right, so that's that's what we're talking about here. And then, of course, obviously, um, double mastectomies and uh, a complete hysterectomy is going to sterilize a girl. And castration, needless to say, is going to sterilize a boy. All right, so this is, by the way, why I assume that politicians don't like to talk about this issue because it's very uncomfortable, but that is what we are dealing with. Okay, so why does the suicide argument matter so much? Because here's the way one psychiatrist, I was reading up on this yesterday, here's how he put it. Now, he's advocating these transition procedures. He said, the question can't be posed as do something which may cause harm against doing no harm, as doing nothing results in very high levels of distress and poor outcomes as well. So in other words, when you're thinking about some kind of medical intervention, you're trading off costs and benefits on both sides. So what would overcome our natural objection to putting teenagers who are not at, have not reached the age of consent, they cannot consent to sex with adults, they can't consent to drink, they can't vote, right? Their brains are not fully formed and matured. What would lead us to overcome our natural opposition to putting them on a pathway to sterilization? Ask any parent that question and he or she will give you the answer. Childhood suicide. That is the worst possible outcome. And I'm absolutely convinced this is why advocates of transitioning have focused all of their effort on this particular question, despite the lack of evidential justification for it. Because it's really the only thing that I think would overcome our natural aversion to putting children on the pathway to sterilization. And so that's why it's so important. It's also why I think... Um, advocates will not give this up lightly. They will be very grumpy about Jay Green's paper, but also why it's so absolutely important, because it lands right in the middle of a policy debate we're having in the United States right now. Between the federal government, who is now all in on uh, gender-affirming care, this, this transition procedure, and individual states like Florida, who has the contrary health guidance, Alabama, which has made these procedures a Class C felony, uh, and other states like Arkansas, uh, which I think have done the best, that uh, they are giving future uh, patients and litigants uh, a private right of action. So a child that's 16, when she has these procedures that are done, she can sue her doctor when she's 40. That's a really good way of dealing with this at a policy level. You're gonna all, we're going to watch this play out. Uh, over the next few years. And that is why this paper landed at exactly the right time and is exactly the sort of thing that we needed to have happen here at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you. And with that, I will hand it over to my friend, Jenny Gentles. Thank you. Thank you, Jay Green, for this research. It matters to parents, matters to kids. Do you want a dead daughter or a live son? The question, which is really a threat, is the central tenet of the campaign selling gender theology to parents. Parents are often told that they're putting their child at risk of suicide if they don't medically transition them. 
The child then internalizes this information and believes it, believes that suicide is the inevitable outcome without transition, as opposed to an unhealthy response to internal distress. The pernicious assumption behind this horrific question, which we hear over and over and over, is that parents do not have the best interest of their children at heart and that the experts know better. Nothing's further from the truth. Over the last seven years, trans activists have ushered in a new era that cuts parents out of critical decision-making regarding their children. And they do this by justifying their actions as the only option to keep gender-questioning child, a gender-questioning child safe from parents who might not enthusiastically affirm and therefore put the child at greater risk of suicide and harm. School district policies drafted by activist organizations like GLAAD, the Human Rights Campaign, and PFLAG require gender support plans to, do, to be developed as soon as a child chooses a new gender identity. The child may suddenly express a preference for the gender identity that's trending in her social circle or online fandom. Once that request is made, the school jumps into action and crafts a plan that codifies the child's new name and identity and, and determines which bathrooms, locker rooms, and sleeping arrangements she'll be using. If the student indicates that her parents don't believe her when she says she's now a boy or gender fluid or non-binary, then the plan instructs school staff to actively hide the new name and identity from the parents. The other students at the school are required to comply with the gender support plan, and the entire school is united against the parents as the school staff secretly and aggressively push the child down a path of social and likely medical transition. Will any of these staff who've huddled with these girls, often 11- and 12-year-old middle school-age children, to craft these gender support plans, be involved in that child's life beyond that particular semester or that school year? Will they remember the child's name in the future, either the name that the parents lovingly and carefully chose or the new name picked by the child when she got caught up in this social contagion? Do the school staff members know the child's likely complex emotional, behavioral, and developmental history? And will they be loving, consistent, and active presence in her life forever? The answer to these questions are, of course, no. Parents know every aspect of their child's past. They're fully invested in their child's present, and they'll do whatever is necessary to provide for their child's future. Parents who are not caught up in this social contagion, who have not bought into this pernicious lie, know that children who threaten suicide are not born in the wrong body and that a risky regimen of puberty blockers, hormones, and surgeries won't bring children the peace and joy they so desperately crave. A child who threatens suicide requires love, kindness, and therapy to address underlying struggles, not sterilization. So school staff may be familiar with the suicide-centered activist slogans that populate their social media feed, and the materials distributed by the many professional associations that are captured by this ideology. But they definitely have not done the research to familiarize themselves with the inevitable damage that so many young people experience after transitioning. Damage that includes loss of bone density, increased risk of, of blood clots, increased risk of cancer, of heart attacks, and of course, future infertility. Or perhaps they don't care about the fate of each individual because they're eagerly serving the broader trans agenda, regardless of their harm to actual people and families. Rather than assuring children that no one is born in the wrong body, schools, many parents, uh, therapists, choose to parrot activist slogans instead. Children are told that doctors guess the gender when the child is born, and sometimes they get it wrong. They're told if they don't fit into 
if they don't feel like they fit into regressive stereotypes about males and females, then they must be transgender. That a safe space is one that affirms fleeting feelings and not biological reality. And that anyone who doesn't immediately and fully embrace their new trans identity hates them and wants to erase them. Most perniciously, children receive a steady drumbeat of messages focused on suicide and death. These slogans are repeated over and over in colorful children's books, at GSA clubs, in lesson materials created by groups called like uh, Queer Kids, Gender Spectrum, Advocates for Youth, and of course Planned Parenthood, an organization that, as we heard, profits from this ideology by doling out cross-sex hormones at clinics across the country. These messages are baked into state and local transgender policies that are adopted often quietly and without even a formal vote by school boards. These slogans are like a giant switch that turns off critical thinking and forbids even gentle questioning. But questions must be asked, and facts must matter, and that's why Jay's research is so important. The children caught up in the social contagion of gender ideology often have underlying conditions, including ADHD, an autism spectrum that materializes uh, with lagging social skills, obsessive rumination, depression, and anxiety. Both studies and the stories of a growing number of detransitioners reveal a tendency to self-harm and even have eating disorders. Life has been hard for these highly sensitive and emotionally intense young people, and they're understandably seeking relief. These vulnerable children, often girls, deserve their parents' involvement as they struggle through puberty, and they need their parents' emotional and financial support as they make it safely to adulthood. At its horribly rotten core, the culture created by the question, do you want a dead daughter or a live son, intentionally drives a painful wedge between parents and children unless parents consent without question to immediate transition. Parents who love their children with every fiber of their being, Parents who've walked with their precious children through every step of their often challenging lives. Parents who would do anything to keep their children safe are shoved aside by arrogant and callous school staff. School staff with I'm your mom now posters hanging on their classroom doors and the full power of the education bureaucracy behind them. Activists and misguided school staff, as well as an alarming number of doctors and counselors who have carelessly embraced the gender gospel, who preach this lie about suicide over and over must stop making these vulnerable students' lives harder. The analysis presented today concludes that increasing minors' access to cross-sex interventions is associated with a significant increase in the adolescent suicide rate. We saw the graphs. We heard what Jace had to say about his research. We heard what he had to say about the existing research that's cited over and over and, and its many flaws. These findings suggest that the policies and standards of care put in place in the name of protecting children from suicide must be reevaluated. It's time to stop cruelly manipulating children with cult-like slogans. It's time to stop driving a wedge between parents and their vulnerable children. Our society must support parents, protect children, and keep families intact by turning away from propaganda centered around suicide threats. We must end secretive and destructive gender support plans and pass laws that affirm that parents have primary responsibility for their children's education and health. Wonderful, thank you to um, all three of our panelists. Um, we're gonna get to audience questions in just a few moments, but I wanna pose um, a couple of questions before we do so. And um, Jay Green, since it's your paper, I wanna direct the bulk of them at you, <laughs> although not exclusively, but um, I'm trying to put on my skeptic's hat 
and you know, think of the criticisms of your paper, some of which you can find on Twitter, I imagine. Um, what would you say to someone who says, your paper doesn't actually measure causality, it's a correlation study? There's a correlation between states that have these policies and elevated uh, rates in suicide. And so you haven't actually shown that either the puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones cause this, nor that the public policy allowing access to these without parental consent causes this. Sure. So, I mean, first, uh, causation is something that is a matter of research design. And correlation is actually a statistical test. And in fact, you can have a causal research design that actually uses a correlation as the test. Um, so these actually um, shows um, uh, that, that people on Twitter have a hard time sometimes with, <laughs> with these topics. Um, but uh, but it, it, I think what you're getting at is a fair point, which is that, um, that this study is not a perfect causal research design because it's not a randomized experiment, which is the best kind, uh, is the ideal, the gold standard of causal research designs, but this is in the category of what are called credibly causal research designs. And that category uh, includes what are called diff-in-diff or difference-in-difference research designs, instrumental variable analyses, and regression discontinuities. Those, those uh, types of research designs are considered credibly causal, and this is in the diff-in-diff category. Um, but it's imperfect. Um, because uh, it's only approximating a randomized experiment. But again, I, I, I think, um, as, as the, my, my other Jay uh, said better than I did, um, this just gets us closer than the existing literature. And I think it makes us uh, really question uh, this repeated emotional extortion that Ginny was, was emphasizing uh, that, that parents and policymakers are facing. As you answered that, I had all these flashbacks to King, Co Coheen, and Verba. Ah, uh, yeah. The methodology text that we yeah. all... No, they were my professors. <laughs> That's um, even better. Yeah. Yeah. I had it secondhand. Um, <laughs> all right, so uh, next question. What would be the most likely causal pathway? Um, so if, if there is some causality here, I mean, what do you hypothesize might be the explanation? Right. Right. I mean, you know, at first blush, I, I expected to find no relationship um, because I thought um, that um, in all likelihood these drugs are um, not helpful, but I, it wasn't my initial inclination to think that they would actually exacerbate increased suicide rates. Uh, but that is what we found. And while the research design can't tell us why these things happen, we can speculate and develop hypotheses that we can test in future research. And I think the, the plausible theories would be, um, uh, first, uh, the untreated underlying mental health issues. So if we provide a, a, an unproductive or unhelpful treatment to, to young people instead of um, actually things that really do address the problems they have, then the untreated underlying mental health issues are going to lead to increased suicide rates. Um, uh, two, there may be some regret and side effect problems associated uh, with these interventions that may later lead to, to, to higher suicide rates. And third, and importantly, there's contagion, uh, which is uh, some people never, who never received these drugs, uh, who were never directly affected by the drugs, um, would nonetheless have an elevated risk of suicide because other people around them are committing suicide at a higher rate. And there is a social contagion in suicide that's well documented, and, and that's why it's also important for us to look not just at 
the effects of these interventions on the individuals who receive them, but on the entire population. Um, Jay Richards, a question for you. In light of you know, this study, but also in light of you know, what this study shows in terms of the weaknesses of the three other studies, and the fact that there is no gold standard study at all, uh, even looking at the impact of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, why the rush from federal policymakers, including the Biden administration, to try to mandate these therapies? What's motivating um, the other side on these issues? I mean, honestly, I cannot think of another motivation than simply deep ideological commitment. I, think, I don't think that President Biden himself personally has spent a lot of time on this issue. Uh, but those of us in Washington, D.C. know that that doesn't necessarily <laughs> matter one way or the other. They're the deeply committed ideologues that are, are behind us and large amount of money that's behind it. And so I honestly think this is essentially an appeasement of radical gender activists. And it's ironic because, as those of us on the stage know, uh, we're going full steam ahead on this particular protocol at exactly the moment when countries that were ahead of us, like Finland and Sweden and the UK, are letting up. So just as the countries that tried this earlier realized, actually, this doesn't seem to do what we thought it did, suddenly the federal government in Washington, D.C. has decided, let's go this way. We know this isn't based on a careful, fair and balanced assessment of the scientific data. I think it's ultimately ideological. I know from past experience with these sorts of events that we probably have parents watching, including parents who might have children uh, struggling with gender dysphoria. I, I know because of the emails that I received when I was working here. And so, Virginia, a question for you. You work with a lot of parents groups, primarily on school choice. I mean, that's where you cut your teeth in the policy world. What is the advice that you give to parents um, you know, who, who might have a child uh, suffering from this? What's the, what, what's, what should they do? What, what's your take-home message? Well, I know from talking to these parents that they, they feel that they have to be silent. They are so afraid. And, and that is one of the, the points of, the, of this message, uh, to make them feel afraid. You will lose your child if you step out of line. You must subscribe to these cult-like slogans, to this path that we have laid out for your child. You may not even gently question it. Um, and I think what um, parents need to realize is that they're not alone and they don't need to be afraid. And I'm very hopeful that this discussion today can help them really, um, really feel that so that they can, they can break out of the fear, they can start speaking up, they can start questioning. And when they, um, when they find out that their, their child is being advised by their therapist, by their pediatrician, by the school to go down this social and medical um, transition, that the parents will um, know to do the research to be aware of the risks, know to speak up about the child and inform the child of the risks, um, and, and know that where to go to counter these, um, these pernicious lies, that, that, that that's their only option. But parents should know that there are groups out there to, to support them. There's um, uh, advocates protecting children. There's, uh, there are ROGD, rapid onset gender dysphoria, parent support groups. Um, there are numerous communities out there. They don't have to be afraid. They don't have to be isolated. They don't have to stay silent. Thank you. All right, so we have 10 minutes left, so it's time for um, audience questions. We're going to have um, two microphones uh, in the aisles. So if you're in person and you want to ask a question, just raise your hand. I'll call on you. We'll bring you a mic. If you're watching online, there is a way to submit questions online. And then we have um, Lindsay Burke who will um, uh, read those aloud for us. So any questions? The floor, floor is open. Yes, right here. 
Thank you so much. And, and thank you, of course, for the research. I, I had two questions. So one, what is the extra number of suicides that you think occurred in these states with uh, minor access? And then the second question I had is that break point of about 2015, does that imply perhaps that the movement to get people to question their own existence itself is creating some of the mental health issues that's driving more suicides, even separate from access to the actual uh, drugs and other medical uh, treatments? So, so if there were simply an overall national increase in the suicide rate uh, because of broader mental health issues, whether related to gender or not, um, that would be netted out in our study. That would have no effect on the results because we're comparing the, the rate of suicide in states that have a certain provision to states that don't. So if there's some sort of national trend that would lift all the boats uh, it would not affect it. We are only looking at whether one boat rises higher than another boat. And the difference between those two boats is 1.6. So the, in the increase is, so you ask for the number, the number is 1.6 per 100,000. Uh, to put that in perspective, it's, it's a 14% increase, but uh, another way to think of it is 11.1 um, uh, is the average state suicide rate in the period we examined. Um, so, you know, thankfully, suicides are actually rare among young people. This is a good thing. Let's, let's not overly scare parents. Um, uh, but, among this, but it's so horrible, it's so horrific, that we really devote a lot of energy to avoiding it. And an extra 1.6 or 14% increase is really horrific. Hi, thank you so much for um, your work on this very important topic. I had two brief questions. Um, the first is, do you know of any research that has been done um, studying the likelihood of suicide before and after um, traditional psychological therapy to treat gender dysphoria? Um, and the second question was more of a medical question. Um, you mentioned um, putting children on puberty blockers to pause puberty um, and then continuing to cross sex hormones. At what point do they... Um, take them off the puberty blockers? And how does the body's natural um, development affect the desired result? So those are great questions. Um, and you're beginning to go beyond my, my depth. <laughs> because I should emphasize, I'm, I'm a, a policy researcher, right? I, I study policies. My degrees in political science and the techniques I'm using are to evaluate the effects of different public policies on outcomes. Um, but maybe my colleague Jay yeah, here. Yeah, and, and Ryan and I, yeah, this is a sort of natural question. So do, we do know this. There's not been a great, there isn't a study that says, you know, let's, let's have a group that in which we do this particular Dutch protocol intervention and one where we do nothing and one where we do, say, cognitive behavioral therapy and traditional psychological therapies for underlying conditions. We don't have anything like that. What we do know is that prior to this, this tsunami, uh, so let's say prior to 2015 or prior to 2010, the vast majority of children who had gender dysphoria grow out of it. They, they, now, very often they're treated in some particular way, uh, but for many children, turns out puberty is a cure for gender dysphoria. So that if you, if you just, it's called watchful waiting, right? That you just deal with your child, you help him or her with his or her problems, uh, but you don't do anything sudden or drastic. Uh, that they get out of this. Now, this is changing very quickly. Let me give you one way in which it's changing. About 98% of kids that are put on puberty blockers go on to get cross-sex hormones. And if they go on to do cross-sex hormones, 
they tend to go all the way. Now, we'll know 20 years from now what the regret on that is. But putting a child on puberty blockers, think of that, 98% go on. So you literally are, you're putting kids on a fast track to this particular outcome right at the beginning, even before you get cross-sex hormones. So it's a very consequential decision right at the beginning. I just want to add one comment to what um, Jay Richard just said there. Um, you know, he gave you three different possible um, treatment options, you know, doing nothing or, you know, the watchful waiting protocol, the Dutch protocol, and then CBT or some other like traditional therapeutic method. Now, I have philosophical, ethical, anthropological reasons for being opposed to cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers. But let's say that you're a researcher and you're, you know, purely an empiricist and you just want to know what's actually going to produce the empirically verified. Why hasn't a clinic done that? Why hasn't there been the gold standard study of saying, look, we're going to treat patients with these three different options and do a long-term study? With... And I think that reaffirms what Jay Richard said earlier, that it's ideology that is driving this, not science, not a commitment to determining the empirical truth. Uh, and I just think the reality that we don't even have that uh, from people who are philosophically open uh, um, to this sort of medicine. I, I think this is unethical medicine, right? So I'm going to... I'm not even going to go along with that research design, but, but those who are open to it, why haven't they done that research design? Right? It's a huge, huge uh, problem for that side of the debate. Uh, we do have time for maybe one or two. Lindsay, yes, a, a question from the internet. We have a ton of online questions, wow. but one quick methodology question for Jay and then a follow-up for Jay Richards. Um, Washington, D.C., you include in your study, it did not, according to this um, questioner, have its policy in place until 2021 and yet you uh, reference all of these policies because they are old policies that have been in place for a long time. Can you talk a little bit about the D.C. case there and why that's included? Sure. So uh, we got the information on what the state provisions were from a website called Schoolhouse Connections. Um, and on their website, it lists the laws and it has a year uh, next to it. So for DC, it lists the law and it lists the year 2021. And people screenshot that on Twitter and say, aha, it couldn't have even affected. Why is it included in this group of states with provisions since it was adopted after the end period of the study? And uh, it takes about two minutes of Google uh, to, to discover that uh, that 2021 law is an amendment to a longstanding policy that actually initially was adopted in 1924. Um, so again, it, these policies are, are generally long-standing and, and were adopted for reasons unrelated to this uh, uh, transgender issue uh, or suicide outcomes. Please comment on the European countries that have found the transition puberty blocker approach is not working. Could you expand on the comment you made earlier? Absolutely. So, so Finland, Sweden, I mean, Finland and Sweden for Americans would be sort of stereotypically progressive countries in which the, the, the kind of affirmation uh, procedures would uh, have gotten an early use. Uh, they've, they've changed their minds on this for the very things that we're talking about here. There's not a lot of good data that it's actually, there are actually positive outcomes from these procedures. The UK is actually undergoing a major uh, review of this process right now. The, the, the benefits sort of empirically about the UK is that because they have a highly centralized medical system, that's bad if you're in the system, but it's actually good for data because they have actually really good numbers. And uh, look, we're not, they're not going to be able to hide indefinitely the lack of positive outcomes from these procedures. And so... Um, the fact that countries that are otherwise would be highly biased in the other direction or hesitating, I think, should speak volumes. 
Um, yes, Brandon Showater. Hi, uh, brilliant panel. Uh, question for probably Jenny or Jay, though, uh, Richards or anybody, if you want to tackle it. It seems that while I so appreciate this research and it tackles a very important question because the suicide thing is the biggest linchpin, as it was said, uh, could one or both of you comment on what is it, um, because this lie is so potent and it just causes parents to be so scared and they just freeze and they just don't, what, is there a piece of information or something that they learn that sort of unfreezes them out of their fear where they realize, oh, I can actually challenge this claim? Have you found that there's something that when they actually can consider and say, wait a minute, is this really true? What is it that sort of breaks them out of the fear that this lie sort of by its nature kind of imposes on them? Well, I, th I think hope can overcome fear, right? And the parent is, is desperate to find a path that's going to help their child and provide a hopeful future. Um, and so parents do, they are paralyzed initially by this lie. Um, they're also caught um, by all these policies that are in place because of this lie. Like I mentioned, the gender support plans um, are, are cutting the parents out of, the, of their, their child's um, life and, and the courts are cutting the, the parents out of their, their children's lives in some cases in, in custody decisions around this lie. Um, but when parents uh, start digging into this issue and in addition to this research, parents can go to a website called GenSpec which has additional information that tears apart this uh, suicide myth and, and provides other resources for them. Once they start seeing that there are alternative paths and they recognize my child has all these underlying issues that so commonly come along with this uh, embracing this um, identity. I can get my child help to address their underlying issues, their depression, their, um, their autism spectrum, lagging social skills, obsessive rumination. I can help them with that and that's going to provide them relief and provide them hope. I think that's when the parents um, get unstuck and the, and the lie loses its power. Um, and what I've noticed is that parents spend maybe the first year or so with uh, when their child is embracing this identity just petrified, really, really afraid. And then they switch to anger because they look around. They, as they learn more, they realize that this is a social contagion. They realize that these are lies. They realize that, that these institutions are captured and they're furious. And so uh, I think we're going to see more and more angry parents. We're going to see the detransitioners speaking up and, and uh, expressing their anger that the adults in their life so mistreated them and led them down this dangerous path. Um, and that combination, that potent combination of like anger and hope is going to overcome this. So with that, do we have time for what? Technically, we're out of time, but can I do one more? All right, we can do one more right, right here um, in the front row here. Hi, thank you. Um, I have two questions. My first question, um, you mentioned in the beginning that um, the use of these drugs has never been used before in this way. Uh, how would you respond to claims that it has been used before in this way in instances of precocious puberty, which I know is slightly different, but it is still in that way of blocking puberty for a reason, right? Maybe not for just that type for a medical reason versus, you know, maybe a non-necessary medical reason, but still is in the same type. Uh, and my second question is uh, that you've called this, um, you know, study. Are you planning to submit it for peer review? Sure. So uh, first to take the second question. Um, so a year ago when I was at uh, university and for all the years before that, the norm in my field and most social sciences is you produce working papers 
which are uh, reports like this one that you make available for comment and feedback and discussion. Um, and then you receive that feedback and you revise it and you submit it to journals. And that's exactly what I'm planning to do here. So think of this study as a working paper uh, and it, it's go then going to be going to a peer reviewed journal and hopefully be published here in the next you know, quarter century, uh, which is about, <laughs> about how long that takes. Um, and that's why people use working papers is because we want to share information with you know, the caveat that this is not yet peer reviewed. Um, but we want to share what we know when we know it so that the information can be useful to people even though the peer review process is very lengthy. Um, and then on the uh, treatments were available for other purposes earlier. Um, again, this is a theoretical point, uh, which is um, if the underlying problem here that's causing an elevation in suicide rate um, is, um, is uh, uh, untreated underlying mental health issues, then prior it was being used for um, uh, not a mental health issue, but for a precocious puberty problem. Um, but here it's being used for a very particular gender-related uh, 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 need. And that usage was pioneered in the Netherlands around 1990 and didn't make its way into the United States until, uh, in a big way, until around 2010. And so it's that use that, that really we're testing, and also the frequency of its use goes up dramatically. And by the way, if you look at the Google trend search for puberty blockers, that term alone, uh, it's zero before 2007, which doesn't mean it's literally never searched, but it means that it averages to zero in the Google <laughs> trend, which ranges from zero to 100. So it's just no one's looking at it. No one's thinking about it. It's not really being done very much. It is being used for the treatment of precocious puberty before then, but, but almost never. And let me just add one thing to that. I mean, with precocious puberty, the, the underlying condition is the early onset of puberty. So you have a child going through puberty at age like five, six, or seven. You would go on a puberty-blocking drug until age nine, 10, or 11, where, when it's biologically appropriate to go through puberty. And so they were being used precisely to then go off the puberty blockers. You would put a child on a puberty blocker to then have them go through puberty at the biologically appropriate stage. Puberty blocking drugs are now being used so that a child will never go through biologically appropriate puberty. Right? That's entirely experimental. It's entirely new, never before done. And we have no idea what the long-term consequences will be. These children are being treated like guinea pigs. Uh, and it's not just their sexual development that takes uh, maturation during puberty, all sorts of biological development takes place during your pubertal growth. And these children will never go through their biologically appropriate puberty. That's why this is so disconcerting, uh, what's going on. Well, and as Jay mentioned, it's kind of a package deal. You do the puberty blockers, and then you uh, go on uh, high levels of, of testosterone. And I, I think you mentioned this in a, an interview recently. Putting a, a girl on a high level of testosterone is essentially putting them through menopause. Um, so we're talking about a, something completely different medically. All right, so with that, I, I just want to say one word of thanks. Um, these three researchers, um, you know, they were doing other things in life. The two Jays were college professors. Jay and Virginia were school choice advocates. They didn't have to weigh in on this debate. And they're not going to get any social accolades or any kind of like <laughs> professional career advance. Like, they're doing it precisely out of devotion to the truth and devotion for the well-being of children. So I want to thank the three of you for doing this. Audience, please join me. Thank you. Thank you all.